0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. It's actually been a while since I recorded an episode, so it feels a little bit strange to be back behind the microphone again, although you probably haven't noticed because these episodes are coming out on a weekly basis. I do tend to go through phases of recording a few and then taking a little bit of a break just due to my schedule and then recording a few more. But anyway, at the moment, it is the very end of August. I think it's the 31st of August today. So I have been at least trying to take things at a little bit of a slower pace, although business has actually been very busy. So it's not been so easy to go at a slower pace, unfortunately, but haven't been recording as many episodes over the month of August. And and now I'm just getting back into things and getting ready, I guess, for September, which often feels like New Year when you live in the UK because it's sort of back to school season for a lot of people and the end of the summer. But I'm just waffling now. and Today's episode is going to be on malabsorption syndromes. And I'll talk a little bit more about malabsorption syndromes are. But before I go into malabsorption syndromes, I just wanted to highlight this idea of fatigue recovery being a complex web. And as I take on more and more clients, and each and every one of these clients are unique in their own way, they have their own combination of different imbalances or different things going on in their body. Each person, although they may be experiencing similar things or similar symptoms, has their own kind of combination or unique combination of imbalances, their own unique web, which then manifests as dis-ease. And malabsorption syndrome or malabsorption syndromes, is part of the web for some people, but not necessarily all people. And I am seeing clients in my current client base who have malabsorption syndromes. I had some issues personally with malabsorption when I was working on my own journey. So I thought it would be helpful to do a podcast on this today. I think um, I've talked a little bit about digestive health in this podcast, but. It's such a big topic. I think I have been either consciously or maybe unconsciously just avoiding talking about digestion in too much detail because I kind of felt like I didn't really know where to start. There's so much to say and, you know, how do I even begin to talk about this topic? But now I'm starting to formulate things in my mind a little bit better about how I want to share a little bit more about digestion and talking about malabsorption. Seems like a good place to start. When I'm referring to malabsorption syndromes, what I'm referring to is a group of disorders that affect the body's ability to properly absorb nutrients and that would include vitamins and minerals and any important substances that we get from our food. And this usually occurs when the digestive system, particularly the small intestine, is unable to absorb nutrients effectively. And so, as I've said already, is these malabsorption syndromes can be part of the web of fatigue for different reasons. So malabsorption syndromes can cause fatigue through several different mechanisms, the first being nutrient deficiencies. If we're not able to absorb essential nutrients and minerals then we don't have these cofactors, which are really important for a wide variety of biochemical reactions in the body, whether that is energy production or immune function or hormone balance or insulin signaling, you know, the list can go on and on and on. But a lack of these nutrients can lead to fatigue in general. And we do want to make sure that we have adequate levels of nutrients as we work on our fatigue recovery journey. And in previous episodes, and I did a whole episode on this in the past, I've talked a little bit about the importance of being able to oxygenate the body. And being able to oxygenate the body requires that we have adequate levels of iron and vitamin B12, folate and vitamin B6. And if we don't have adequate levels of these nutrients, that can lead to anemia. And anemia is seen in blood work as a reduced number of red blood cells or a decrease in hemoglobin. And we need healthy red blood cells. We need healthy amounts of hemoglobin so that we can transport oxygen around the body and get it to our tissues, to our organs, to our muscles, to our brain. And if all of these organs and our muscles and our brain aren't getting oxygen, that's going to lead to fatigue. So if there's any kind of malabsorption which is influencing our ability to make red blood cells, that has a knock-on effect on multiple different systems of the body. And when I'm working with clients, if there's any issues in their full blood count or looking specifically at the red blood cells, that's something we really need to address as top priority because oxygen is important for life. Another mechanism by which malabsorption contributes to fatigue is by impairing energy metabolism. We have these different biochemical processes that need to happen in the body. We need to break down glucose and be able to make energy from glucose. We need to send fats into the Krebs cycle and we need to be able to make energy from our fats and we also need to be able to metabolize proteins. These macronutrients are crucial for producing energy through the body's metabolic processes. And if macronutrients are not properly absorbed, then that's going to create issues with energy production. But additionally, we need micronutrients as cofactors for all the biochemical steps by which our macronutrients are transformed into energy in the body. Therefore, if anything is lacking, whether it's on a micro or macro level, that's going to result in the consequence of fatigue. Malabsorption can also affect the transportation of nutrients across the intestinal lining and into the bloodstream. And these nutrients are not only going to be important for our energy cycles, but for all the organs to function well, whether that's the brain, the muscles, or um, any kind of system in the body needs nutrients. An example of one of those systems would also be hormonal balance. So malabsorption can impact the balance of hormones within the body, including hormones like the thyroid hormone, which regulates metabolism, energy levels, and our overall sense of well-being. And hormones can contribute to feelings of fatigue when they are out of balance. And then finally, many malabsorption syndromes are associated with inflammation and immune responses in the gut. And if there's any sort of chronic inflammation, which is ongoing in the gut, that can create a systemic response in the body through a variety of mechanisms. And that can also be an underlying cause of fatigue, a sense of tiredness, or inflammatory symptoms as a whole. So now that you have a little bit of an understanding about how malabsorption syndromes can influence fatigue and energy and health in general, how would you know if this is a problem for you? Maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, do I need to be worried about this or do I not need to be worried about this? Because let's face it, when you are in this sort of chronic illness situation, there are so many different rabbit holes to go down. And sometimes we need to be able to discern this information is relevant to me, this information is not relevant to me, or this information is relevant, but it's not the clinical priority, and I need to just put it on pause for right now. So what I would say is that mother syndromes are a clinical priority. So if you resonate with any of the symptoms, it might be worthwhile starting to take this a little bit more seriously. Symptoms may include diarrhea, weight loss or inability to gain weight due to loss of muscle mass or muscle wasting, abdominal pain or discomfort, bloating and gas, weakness and fatigue, known vitamin and mineral deficiencies, deep muscle or bone pain, chronic spasms, easy bruising or bleeding gums, loss of menstrual cycles in women, abnormal stools, so maybe seeing steatorrhea, so fatty stools or clay-colored stools, inflammation of the tongue or having a um, a coated tongue, or if you have a history of autoimmune disease, you could be predisposed to some autoimmune intestinal disorders, which could be feeding into a male absorption syndrome. So obviously, that list, you know, a lot of people have fatigue, but they may not have a malabsorption syndrome. A lot of people might have some gas and bloating, but they may not have a malabsorption syndrome. So those are little clues that this could be an issue for you. But then we can look at blood work and dig a little bit deeper. Something I see a lot on the lab tests that I run with my clients, I really like to start with a full blood count. You can get a lot of good information from a full blood count. And I like all my clients to have that when they first start with me. But on a full blood count, you may see low red blood cells, low hemoglobin low hematocrit or increased MCV, MCH or MCHC. And these can all be signs of anemia or maybe if someone isn't quite anemic yet, sort of warning signs that there could be some oxygenation issues. Something I don't see that often but worth mentioning is low cholesterol. So if there's low cholesterol, that could be a sign of fat malabsorption. If there's decreased albumin, globulin, or protein in your blood work, or if there's a low platelet count or low vitamin D, even when you're supplementing. So, you tested your vitamin D, vitamin D was, D was low, you've been taking additional vitamin D support, but your vitamin D isn't changing, that can be a sign that you're not necessarily absorbing fat soluble nutrients like vitamin D, but also vitamins A and E and K as well. So, The symptoms of malabsorption syndrome in conjunction with this blood work can be your initial clues that this might be something worth considering in your health and wellness journey. And once you've identified, okay, um, there may be some malabsorption issues here, the next thing we want to think about is why? What is causing this? And in some cases, people may have very severe things going on, which may require actually chronic and lifelong support to stabilize their symptoms and maintain quality of life. So malabsorption syndromes can be very serious and identifying them and identifying the underlying cause is really important in terms of understanding the prognosis, understanding how much improvement you can expect to get. Do you need to be supporting your body? very strictly for the rest of your life or is this something that you can nip in the bud and rebalance quite easily. So I'll go into possible causes of malabsorption syndrome and there's four possible causes here. The first two I'm going to mention are a little bit more easy to manage although Probably none of this is easy, so maybe easier to manage. And then the last two are those which would probably require medical attention. You should be seeing your doctor if you are at risk for any of these conditions. So the first one is damage to the brush border microvilli of the small intestine. So those are like the very, very fine hair like structures that sit on the small intestine, and they're really important for releasing enzymes, which promote digestion. Then they're really important for the health of the intestinal lining and for absorption of nutrients. The second cause could be gallbladder or bile dysfunction. So maybe poor gallbladder contraction, poor bile salt production, or poor bile salt reabsorption, which I'll talk about in a little bit more detail. And then three and four, Chronic pancreatic disease, which would need to be diagnosed and addressed with a medical doctor, and reduced circulation to the intestines due to congestive heart failure. Those are two conditions that really need to be overseen by a medical doctor, and it's understanding if you are someone with chronic pancreatic disease or you are someone with congestive heart failure... The, the prognosis is very different compared to somebody who maybe just has a little bit of damage to their brush border microvilli because they had an infection of some kind. So knowing what you're up against is really important as you work on your health because it's important that we're realistic about what results can be achieved. So what I'd like to go into in the rest of this podcast is just talking about what you can do if you are possibly somebody who falls into that first category, the damage to the brushboard of microvilli, Or maybe if you are someone with some gallbladder or um, bile dysfunction. So when we're looking at damage to the brush border and the microvilli, the most common causes of damage would be celiac disease, which is an autoimmune response involving gluten, chronic inflammatory bowel disease, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Radiation treatment can cause damage, intestinal autoimmunity, or intestinal infections. So I'll talk through each of these in a little bit more detail. Celiac disease, most people, at least in this health and wellness space, have heard of celiac disease. But in case you don't know what it is, it's an autoimmune disorder where the ingestion of gluten triggers an immune response that damages the lining of the small intestines. And then that is what causes the poor nutrient absorption or impaired nutrient absorption. Now, testing for celiac disease is a little bit tricky. The best test and the test that I like to recommend that my clients do is the Cyrex RA3 because it tests several different immune reactions to gluten, wheat, and it also includes your transglutaminase-2 antibodies. So transglutaminase-2 antibodies cross-react with gluten to destroy the microvilli of the small intestine. So if you're somebody who tests positive for transglutaminase-2, then gluten and possibly gluten cross-reactive foods would be an absolute no-go for you lifelong. If you're somebody who just has a little bit of gluten sensitivity, that might be something that you can overcome and maybe tolerate little bits of gluten moving forward in the future, depending on your own health status and how that change. So if you are somebody who tests positive for transglutaminase 2, it would mean that gluten for you and possibly gluten cross-reactive foods as well would be a lifelong no-go. But if you're somebody who just has gluten sensitivity versus celiac disease, you wouldn't have the transglutaminase 2. And you may find if you do some really good work to restore your health, you could eat or tolerate gluten in small amounts in the longer term. But ultimately, what we want to know about celiac disease is that the reaction with gluten and the transglutaminase 2 impacts the integrity of the intestinal membrane and the ability to produce brush border enzymes, which are responsible for food digestion. and Advanced stage celiac disease can be determined by endoscopy, where we'll actually start to see visible atrophy or complete destruction of the microvilli. And I've worked with clients like this. I've worked with clients with quite severe destruction of their microvilli, and it is something that you can heal, it can change, but it does need to be very, very closely managed, and we want to be on top of nutrient absorption while we do this. So it can be really helpful if you think that you may have celiac disease or a gluten sensitivity to test for transglutaminase because gluten can cross-react with other foods, which are known as gluten cross-reactive foods. So this is when there's a cross-reaction between gluten and other food. It's a lot of grains. For the most part, and therefore continuing to eat the gluten cross-reactive foods may continue to destroy the microvilli even when you are eating gluten-free. And if you'd like to know what those specific cross-reactive foods are, I'll just recite a list for you. So gluten cross-reactive foods include dairy, horn, millet, oats, rice, amaranth, buckwheat, soy, Hemp, potato, sesame, sorghum, tapioca, teff, quinoa, and soy, and egg. I think I said soy twice. So if you're reacting to gluten and you take out gluten but you still don't feel great, it could be worthwhile also taking out those foods and see if they help you to feel a little bit better. So the next thing on the list for malabsorption syndromes would be intestinal autoimmune disease. And intestinal autoimmune diseases include Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and autoimmune gastritis. And we can test for those by doing antibody testing. So for example, Crohn's disease is tested with anti-saccharomyces antibodies, also abbreviated as ACSA, and endoscopy. And ulcerative colitis is anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies, ANCA, and sigmoidoscope, and then autoimmune gastritis we can measure with antiparietal cell antibodies and endoscopy. So when I suspect that there may be some sort of autoimmune gastrointestinal issue with my clients, I do like to run the Cyrex RO5 Some people may test positive for these antibodies even when their endoscopy or sigmoidoscopy comes back normal because they've got the antibodies, they're just not at the stage yet where the antibodies are creating tissue destruction. The Cyrex RO5 tests for 24 different autoantibodies that could be impacting several body tissues. So if autoimmunity is positive, then the digestive system may need some specific support. But the whole body may also need support, which is specific to autoimmunity. And it goes beyond the scope of this particular podcast today to talk about all the things that we would do to support someone if there was autoimmunity. But in the context of malabsorption syndromes, it's helpful to rule this out if it is suspected. So the next things to consider would be infections, Uh, particularly certain parasite infections can damage the intestinal lining and they can interfere with nutrient absorption. So parasites can be identified in stool testing. And also I like to use a full blood count. And if we see elevated eosinophils greater than 3%, that's a good indicator that we could possibly suspect parasites. However, I've talked about parasites in a lot more detail in one of my previous episodes. I think it was episode 53. So you can go and listen to that one specifically because, again, just like autoimmunity, it's a whole topic in itself. And there are times when we actually don't want to address parasites, but parasite infections can be something which impact nutrient absorption. And it is worth considering them in the context of your case. And then finally, we've got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, also known as SIBO. And SIBO is a condition where there are an abnormal number or, uh, and types of bacteria in the small intestine. So we have a lot of bacteria in the colon, but which is the large intestine, and we tend to have less bacteria in the small intestine. But when there's an overgrowth or an increased migration of bacteria from the colon to the small intestine, then we may end up with something known as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. And this excess of bacteria in the small intestine can cause inflammation, can be responsible for a lot of gas and bloating, it can be responsible for altered gut motility, and all of these different things for different reasons can affect the absorption of nutrients. You can test for SIBO with breath testing. I'll say here that I very seldom run SIBO breath tests in my practice. I guess when you're working with chronic and complex clients, there can be a lot of things that I would love to test. Given an unlimited budget, we would just test everything. My preference is usually to just do stool testing. And often there's a lot of clues and indicators on stool testing that could suggest SIBO. And then I would often operate based on client symptoms as if there was SIBO. But the stool test gives us a much better picture of other things that could be going on as well. But if you were to do the SIBO breath testing, if there was a positive result, then traditional support would look like an antibiotic, which you would have to see your doctor to get a prescription for, or you can do natural antimicrobial therapy in conjunction with a low FODMAP diet. So a low FODMAP diet is When you eat foods which are low in specific types of carbohydrate and fiber, which is much more easily fermented by these bacteria overgrowing in the small intestine, a lot of people do quite well on a low FODMAP diet. And this can be successful in some and many cases, but some people can be prone to very stubborn SIBO, SIBO that continues to reoccur. And that's often when there are underlying factors that haven't been acknowledged or addressed in the person's case. And some of those factors include stomach acid. So the acid in our stomach is sort of the first Part of digestion as food comes into the stomach, it combines with acid, and that acid should begin to digest food. And then that acidic bolus of food moves from the stomach down into the small intestine. And as it does, it then triggers the release of pancreatic enzymes, but it also is impacting the pH of the gastrointestinal tract. And acid is lower pH, alkaline is a higher pH. So if there's low stomach acid for whatever reason, then we may have a high gastrointestinal pH and then that can create an environment where bugs can thrive. So there can be other overgrowths, whether that's parasite, yeast, or bacteria are much more likely to thrive when the acidity of the gut is at a higher pH. So stomach acid which or low stomach acid, which isn't addressed, can be a cause of recurrent infections or recurrent SIBO. If there's any nervous system issues, this can also be a factor in recurrent SIBO, whether that's dysautonomia, whether that is neuroinflammation, Or sometimes it can also be degeneration of the gut plexus and enteric nervous system. So we often think about neurodegeneration being in the brain, but we can also have neurodegeneration of the gut plexus and enteric nervous system, and this alters the ability of the gut to function, and that can be an underlying cause of uh, recurrent SIBO. And so in this case, if someone is in a situation where there is actually neurodegeneration, obviously we want to do as much as we can to prevent further degeneration, but we may have to constantly stay on top of the SIBO. That may be a lifelong practice to make sure that we can continue to maintain the health of the microvilli. We're not getting lots lots of symptoms of gas and bloating, and there's no malabsorption issues because then it just becomes like a series of dominoes if there's neurodegeneration and then we're getting overgrowth of bacteria, the bacteria damaging the gut, there's poor nutrient absorption, then none of those systems that I talked about earlier can work well. We can, We don't get good oxygenation, we don't get good metabolic processes, we start to see hormone imbalances we start to see systemic inflammation in the body so it's really important that we know what's going on and we make sure we're addressing what's going on and i think in this kind of like chronic illness land as well where there's a lot of emphasis put on You know, full recovery and full healing, there are some conditions that we can never fully repair 100%. And we need to be mindful of that and that we continue to give the body the support that it needs in the face of the individual challenges that we experience. So that wraps up the digestive inflammation damage brush border section. Where I'd like to go next is to talk a little bit about the gallbladder and gallbladder dysfunction. So the gallbladder is where we make bile salts, and these bile salts are released into the gut, and once the bile salts are in the gut, they emulsify fats, so they're they take part in the absorption of fatty acids. So all the lovely, healthy, good fats that you're eating in your diet, you need bile salts to emulsify and absorb them. And also fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, and K, which all have their own roles, which are very important in the body. So there are some clues to whether or not gallbladder function is impacted. It's really hard to see gallbladder dysfunction on an ultrasound. Things have to have gone really, really south before we can start to see that there is chronic and serious gallbladder dysfunction. So things to pick up on in the earlier stages might be cholesterol, which is low, vitamin D, which is low despite supplementation, platelets that are low there may be an intolerance to fatty meals so for example if you've ever you know if you take some fish oil supplements or you eat some oily fish and then you have these fish oil burps after eating a fishy meal or taking some fish oil supplements if you've had your gallbladder removed obviously that's a concern and then any upper back and abdominal pain could also potentially be a clue that gallbladder might be something that you want to pay attention to so if we have impaired synthesis of bile salts, that can lead to what we, we call bile sludge or in the more extreme form, gallstones. And then we can have core bladder contractility, which means that bile salts are not ejected into the gut, which means we can't then emulsify fats and we can't absorb nutrients. And these bile salts are also really important for balancing out the microbiome. So we start to maybe see some digestive issues as well relating to microbiome health. So we want to think about what are the things that can help with bile acid synthesis and production? And what are the things that can help with gallbladder contractility? So we can increase contractility with exercises which stimulate the vagal nerve. But it's also important to understand that there can be underlying imbalances which could contribute to poor contractility. So that could be taking certain medications and I think the most important one probably to mention would be things like hormone replacement therapy, which if you have underactive thyroid, you could be taking that. Or if you're perimenopause or postmenopause, you could be taking that. Oral contraceptives, statins, diuretics, the chronic use of antibiotics can also affect gallbladder contractility. If there's intestinal inflammation because of other infections which are going on or SIBO or some autoimmunity, that could impact the gallbladder contractility. If there's gut neurodegeneration or brain degeneration or brain injury or post-concussion syndrome, all of those things could impact the gallbladder contractility. And interestingly enough, iron deficiency can also impact gallbladder contractility. So there's certain things we can do from a supplement perspective to help. Coffee, green tea, ginger, curcumin, all promote gallbladder contractility. And then phosphatidylcholine, beetroot, taurine, and vitamin C promote the metabolism of cholesterol and bile salts. And then milk thistle and dandelion, they can counteract the negative impact of estrogen on bile flow so if you are somebody who is more estrogen dominant those would be good choices and if you are somebody who is prone to things like gallstones for example you can supplement with exogenous bile salts but these do tend to have a lot of side effects so i would only recommend that someone does that under the guidance of an appropriately trained practitioner So hopefully all of that has given you a little bit of insight into malabsorption syndrome. We're looking for those symptoms of malabsorption syndrome, which I talked about. So you know, weight loss, I think, or inability to gain weight would be a really big one, but there can be others as well. And then we can cross-reference that with the blood work. So looking for signs of anemia, looking to see if there's low cholesterol, looking to see if there's low platelets or vitamin D low albumin globulin or protein any of those could all give a sign that there may be some malabsorption if there is some malabsorption then we need to go and we need to ask well why why is this happening and you know is it maybe that you do have some bacterial overgrowth maybe it's SIBO that can be really common is there celiac disease or some, some intestinal autoimmunity which hasn't been identified do you have parasites? You know, what might be the proper, the, the probable causes? And if it's anything like low platelets, low cholesterol, low vitamin D, is there a gallbladder issue that you you want to work with as well? So where I'd like to go next with this episode is just to share my own personal story with malabsorption. I do kind of sprinkle in some of my own personal anecdotes in the podcast and malabsorption was a massive one for me, so it does feel really appropriate to talk about this today. I have probably shared many times already that chronic diarrhea was something that I presented with in my own journey and It did fluctuate. So it wasn't horrific all the time, but it was probably, I would say, at least 50% horrific, 30% bad, and maybe 10% manageable and 10% good over the course of two years. And when it was at its worst, you know, I could be rushing to the bathroom, you know, 10 to 15 times a day with just watery stools. And then I maybe would have, you know, better bowel movements depending on where I was in my hormone cycle. And again, this is going on a little bit of a tangent, but I would also say that that pattern is a pattern that I still have today, not with diarrhea, but my digestion was more stable in the second half of my cycle in the luteal phase. And still to this day, I always feel better in the second half of my cycle and I feel worse in the early follicular phase of my cycle. So, you know, around menstruation, when the hormones are lower, that's usually when I'll have a little bit less energy and a little bit less capacity in terms of physical and and cognitive function as well. So in my journey with all of this, I did many tests and I'll share with you what I did. I also tried so many different combinations of supplements and I failed many, many times. And that's why I always say to people, you know, working through this chronic fatigue journey, it's probably trying so many different things, learning from the things that don't work, and just, you know, using that information to to keep moving forward. Like don't be disheartened if not everything works perfectly or not everything works perfectly the first time around. But the first test that I did in my own journey relating to digestion, obviously I did a whole host of tests was the GI FX a comprehensive stool test, which is a test offered by Genova Diagnostic. I think it's currently retails around £375, so it's quite a significant investment. It does need to be ordered through an appropriately trained practitioner. And the results from that test showed that I had some yeast overgrowth, I had parasites, I had dysbiosis, I had mild digestion, and I had inflammation in my gut. So it was pretty much I had everything. I had a large amount of a specific bacteria called D. Vibrio which is a specific bacteria associated with hydrogen sulfide SIBO. And this particular flavor of SIBO, shall we call it, is linked more so with diarrhea. I've had very low levels of methanobrevibacter smithii, which can be associated with more constipation-dominant SIBO. And hydrogen sulfide SIBO is really difficult to test for. So I didn't bother to do a breath test. And as I've said already, I often don't do breath tests with my clients if I see a lot of dysbiosis and a lot of overgrowth of specific type of bacteria in their stool test. Um, But due to the extent of my dysbiosis, I did a Cyrex test, which is Cyrex RA2, which is a test for intestinal permeability and endotoxemia. Now, I'm actually going to record a full podcast episode talking about leaky gut, intestinal permeability, and endotoxemia. And that will probably be the next episode. But for now, just know that what it means is leaky gut means that the intestinal membrane is permeable. And endotoxemia means that when you've got a lot of bacteria in the gut, Something known as lipopolysaccharide, it's like a bacterial endotoxin, is produced by these bacteria. It can pass through the leaky gut into the bloodstream, bind to immune receptors in the body, and it can create this whole systemic inflammation. Because I had so much bacteria in my gut, this is something I screened myself for with the Cyrex ARI2. Fortunately, it came back absolutely fine, so I had no leaky gut and I had no endotoxemia. Which, given how awful I felt at the time, was quite surprising. But I guess also a bit of a win because it was if I had had those things, especially leaky gut with endotoxemia. I probably would have been in a lot worse health than than what I was. So definitely a blessing to test negative on that test or or not to have to live through that experience. But I have worked with clients who have had that. And yeah, it's a lot to manage. So I did this stool test, I think it was October 2020. And then a few months later, I did a NutriVal, which is also with Genova Diagnostic, which is a comprehensive nutritional panel. It looks at all your vitamins, minerals, and proteins. And how the test works is like a traffic light system. So you have like a green column with everything that's normal. You have a yellow column with everything that's okay, borderline. And then you have a red column with everything you need. Um, And there's maybe like 20 different things that it's screening you for. And I had one Thing in the green column, everything else was in the yellow and the red, and specifically B vitamins like um folate b twelve b six all those ones which are important for your um oxygenation for your red blood cells and vitamin D as well. There was a lot of malabsorption going on, and then at the same time, I also did some blood work when I was working through my own journey, obviously, it was my own personal journey, but I was also working through it in a way that I could see how one thing related to another and then kind of translate that into how I would also interpret information when working with my clients. So I did a lot of tests all at the same time so that I could see, okay, when that was high, that was also high. When that was low, that was also low. And so at the same time as doing the NutriVal, I did a blood test and I measured the globulin, albumin, and protein. And my globulin level was low. So if any of one of any of those three is low, that can suggest malabsorption. So yeah, I, was, I had a lot of malabsorption issues and, and it was a lot for me to deal with. And so after trying many different things, the things that helped me the most were brain retraining and nervous system work. And a lot of this is what I teach in my nurturing resilience program, but I've also shared in the past about some of the things that I've did and how I approached them. And I did that in conjunction with a low sulfur diet because of the D-sulfur vibriopiga bacteria that I had large amounts of, oregano and bismuth because they're also supposed to be good for hydrogen sulfide SIBO, betaine hydrochloride, so addressing stomach acid and digestive enzymes, Probiotics and parasite cleansing, not all at once. It was probably over the course of a year. So it was a phased approach. I did the brain retraining, the low-sulfur diet, and the initial kind of oregano and bismuth, and then I went on probiotics for a bit, and then I did some parasite cleansing, and then went back on probiotics, and then did some more parasite cleansing, and then did another round of oregano. And the whole time, everything was getting better and better. I would say within the first three months, everything had kind of stabilized, but it wasn't perfect. And then as time went on, I was just kind of like tweaking here, tweaking there, doing a little bit of this, doing a little bit of that, but just gradually getting better and better over time. And, you know, beginning of this year now, I was eating plenty of those high sulfur foods. I can now eat raw onion. I eat raw onion almost every single day. I love to have it in salads. So complete turnaround in terms of digestion, but it took a really long time And it wasn't about doing lots of aggressive things. I think it was just about doing the right amount of things and then just giving my body also the space that it needed and supporting my nervous system the whole way through as well. And I also think we do tend to have these little like weak spots. So in June this year, I went out to eat at a restaurant and then the next day, um, my stomach was a little bit funny. and then these diarrhea-type symptoms returned in the same kind of way that I had experienced them before. And so I guess I must have eaten something, maybe some sort of infection, got some sort of food poisoning or something at the restaurant, and it sort of triggered my symptoms back, not as severe, but still to a certain degree but i think once you've worked through all of these challenges you kind of know what you need to do to address them so i just went back on a little bit more aggressive probiotics and took some antimicrobial herbs and within about a month or two it had cleared up but i do think that when we are prone to these things and something happens you know it's our weak spots that that show up first The only other thing that I'll mention on this is that I have screened myself for celiac disease in the past. So in about 2015, so many years ago now, I was getting some of these diarrhea symptoms and I did the Cyrex RA3, which is the comprehensive gluten sensitivity test. And I had, everything was absolutely normal for me. So I know that celiac disease slash gluten sensitivity isn't necessarily an issue for me, although I still do generally actually avoid gluten anyway, but, um, So if we're kind of thinking of those different types of reasons for the malabsorption syndrome, for me it did seem to be very much of a SIBO type of pattern. And I would say the fact that if you're you're going to the bathroom 10 to 15 times a day, there's just no time for you to absorb anything either. So I think the combination of those two things were something that were really impacting me in this case. But your case may be different, which is why it's always important to get someone to help you and to properly explore and investigate and make sure that all bases are covered as you work on your health recovery journey. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode today. I think it's been quite a long one. I'm not quite sure how long I've been talking now, but it feels like quite a while. So I think it's a good time for us to wrap up and I will see you in the next episode.